Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest will be Alan Clear, of the Harm Reduction Coalition, and Stasia Kostner from Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Before we start the show this evening, I'm going to talk a little bit about our organization. Our organization is HEMS, Harm Reduction for, for Alcohol, and uh, our website is hemsnetwork.org. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. I see our first guest is here. I'm going to bring him on the air. Hello, Alan. Can you hear me? Yep, I can hear you well. Alan, tell us a little bit about the Harm Reduction Coalition, what it is, and what sorts of things you do. Okay. We're um, a national organization, although we do do some international work now, um, some policy work globally and some help in some countries like Ukraine and Tanzania. We've been out there recently. Um, and our international work very much feeds back into our domestic work, our national work. But we do five main things, really. One is policy and advocacy work. And this is all around harm reduction, which is looking at the health care and social justice needs of people who use drugs, principally those most affected by drugs in an adverse way. So, um, so policy and advocacy, for example, would be around getting the federal ban on the funding of syringe exchange removed because we very much support syringe exchange as an intervention to stop the spread of HIV and hepatitis C, and we've had that barrier in place since the late 80s, and we work to get that removed. Um, overdose legislation would be another thing we do. We want um, safety and security for people who use opiates, and we want them to understand how to reverse a drug overdose. We do training capacity building. Uh, we have an office here in New York and in California, in Oakland, and in each location, we do trainings uh, at our offices. So every quarter, we do a whole new set of trainings. Some of it's skills building, some of it's just purely educational and informational. Uh, we, we will go out into the community, wherever you are, and uh, provide trainings if people want us to go to you know, Miami, for example, and we can do training there. Mm -hmm. And we have some contracts with different um, departments of health, and we'll travel around the state like we do in New York doing uh, different trainings. We also do capacity building, which is a bit more intense. It's a, you know, a way of working with organizations to build their capacity to, look, to deliver services better. We do the only national conference on harm reduction, and that's every two years. The next one's going to be in Portland, uh, November 2012, Portland, Oregon. And in between, we do regional conferences or local conferences. So we've done conferences about women's issues, mental health. Uh, we did one last year for drug users who provide syringes to their peers here in New York City. Um, and we do put out publications and reports. 
So just this week, we're releasing a report called User to User, which is the peer-delivered syringe exchange experience in New York City. And uh, just to explain a little about what that is, it's drug users often exchange syringes when they come to a syringe exchange program for their friends, for their family, for those people that can't make it because they're at work or they, they can't make the hours. And that's called secondary exchange. But that is officially uh, outlawed in New York State. So instead of um, doing it naturally, the State Department of Health has uh, set up a program where drug users can be trained to supply syringes and HIV and hepatitis C and overdose information to their peers. And that, that has become the peer-delivered syringe exchange. And so we've just done a report on that, which you can find from our website, which is harmreduction.org. And accompanying that, we do things like podcasts, um, which are interviews with different folks in the harm reduction movement. And this week's podcast is to fit in with the report, so peer-delivered syringe exchange, user to user. Uh, so we put out reports, we put out publications on hepatitis C, um, various drugs like heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine. So um, it's information that drug users can actually use. It's not moralistic in tone. It's something that it's actually very often written by drug users. Mm-hmm. And then finally, what we really are, even though we're called the Harm Reduction Coalition, I think we're less of a coalition than we are a network. So we we kind of know what is happening around the country in different parts of the the U.S. and I guess globally too. And um, we can connect people. So we can connect people, users who want to find programs. We can connect media to you know, a uh, syringe exchange program in uh, Washington State, you know, things like that. So we're, we're just a big network as well. So that's, that's the basic down dirty who we are and what we do. Okay. I uh, read one of your publications some years back. It was called Getting Off Right. It was a guide to safe uh, drug injection. And I, mm-hmm. thought, I thought it was a very good book. It uh, helped a it helped me a lot when I was writing my own book about alcohol because it was talking about things that people could actually do to be safer or to use more in a more sane manner, so to speak. I thought it was an excellent book. Yeah, and and again, that's that's a that's an example of you you, you won't find um, it's not something that the federal government would put out. Um, so that's something that we felt that there was a gap for a lot of. You know, the way that drug users learn to use drugs um, is from each other. That That's where pretty much people get that, you know, people pass on the information like folklore in some ways. And what we wanted to do is take the best bits of that folklore, um, code, uh, put it into a book, give people options around the, uh, varieties of things they could do. Because you, you can create a book and a manual that gives you state-of-the-art sterile injection practices, but that's not the way people live. So we want to give people sort of various options as to how they, um, you know, that fits the situation they're in. And really what we want people to do is think through the way they use their drugs. And if you think, begin to think through it, you have a greater consciousness about what you're doing to yourself, you know, how much you enjoy your drugs or how much you don't enjoy your drugs. Do you want to change what you do? And it's all about consciousness and uh, thinking about, you know, how you can do things better or if you want to stop using drugs, you know, there's ways which we can help you do that too. I took one of your trainings when I was in Minneapolis when you were giving a training at Access Works. 
where I was volunteering, and I thought it was very useful. Uh, could you tell us some of the topics that you cover in the trainings? Yeah, we do a variety of things. So, And actually, we will tailor it to whatever the needs of the organization um, is. So, for example, we could do we could do a training on safer injection. We, uh, a lot of providers, especially in HIV, you know, they're quite comfortable saying how you put a condom on because, you know, people are familiar with sex. Um, but very often people are less familiar with how to inject drugs unless they've done it before. So people would tend to ste- people tend to steer away from talking about things they're not comfortable with. So we will try and chain, uh, train people on, on different techniques of uh, drug use, such as smoking crack or injecting drugs, so that people have that information. We might train people on clinical skills, like motivational interviewing, how you work with a person who is in different in, in certain stages of their drug use, whether they're enjoying it, not enjoying it, and how you move them to make some decisions around how they proceed with their drug use and their life in general, actually. So it might do clinical stuff like that. Overdose trainings, um, that's one of our big ones. We train people uh, how to respond to a drug overdose and putting the power back in the hands of the people who um, are most at risk for overdose um, or who might be around someone's overdosing. So that could be a family member. You know, it's like if you, there's nothing worse than feeling powerless when you have, uh, you know, a husband or a wife or a child who's using drugs and you, you worry constantly about what's going to happen to them. Well, I mean, there are things you can learn. Like it's basically like learning first aid in some ways, and that's a powerful tool. Um, what else do we do? So it might be hepatitis C and mental health. It might be alcohol and hepatitis C. Um, we, we basically tailor anything that the person or the group of people want to learn about. Okay, um, you do a National Harm Reduction Conference every two years. The last one I attended, it was in Austin, Texas. Um, can you tell us some of the highlights from the conference from Austin? Yeah, it was actually it was a great conference. Um, it's funny, we, I guess that was number nine, I think. Was it nine or eight? One of them. Uh, we did them every two years. We've been doing them since 1996. And, you know, we were, you never know quite what to expect. And with the economy the way it is, you never know who's going to, how many people can get there? We're not exactly a rich bunch of people. And so, to me, the highlight is always the gathering in the sense. It's always the networking. It's, it's seeing people that you have sort of grown up with in some ways, and it's about meeting the people uh, that are new to the field. Uh, and that's always very exciting. Um, we had a focus on stigma this year. That was, that was a little bit controversial because... Um, and it was interesting, probably one of the highlights of the conference was people talking about their relationship to their personal recovery around drugs and how they may have uh, been a drug user in the movement and switched over to being abstinent, and that's the way that they live, or they could have been abstinent and switched over to some kind of other you know, moderate drug use. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, not too distant from them, we had a panel on stigma, which had drug users speaking about the way they they experience stigma and the way that society stigmatizes them as drug users and basically takes disempowers them. Um, you know, there's people are told um, that they're they're 
worthless and their failures. And on the one hand, the recovery panel had a really amazing reception, and the stigma one where people talked about how they felt as drug users got a very mixed reaction, which was an interesting dynamic there because, um, you know, and in some ways it's instructive. It, it, you, we sort of learn on how you want to frame some of these issues, perhaps. But it also kind of reinforced how nervous people are around disclosing or hearing people disclose that they use drugs. Um, and, and that's sort of the whole conference is an anti-stigma conference or an event in some ways. So bringing that to the fore, it's probably a healthy thing, and it's a safe environment to do it in. So that's um, that was a couple of highlights there that I thought uh, stood out. Uh, what did you like about the conference? Um, well, one thing there was uh, there was three sessions in a row on harm reduction for crack cocaine. And that was yeah. something that I was very interested in. And, in fact, we did one of our shows earlier with uh, Kevin Irwin and Mark Kinsley, uh, who were involved in that panel. And uh, it was an excellent show, and we learned a lot about uh, there, there are ways to do harm reduction for crack cocaine. Yep, I agree. That was um, something we've been working on for a number of years because, you know, it's, crack is a... If you look at the dynamic around drug use in this country, you know, and a lot of the work that we've been fortunate enough to do has risen out of the HIV epidemic. Uh, so drug injection and replacing the sterile syringe for use and potentially contaminated syringe is sort of a no-brainer, and that's syringe exchange. Mm -hmm. And people are familiar with that, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem as simple for crack use. Mm -hmm. And you compare what has gone on in this country around the reaction to a methamphetamine epidemic, um, and there was a response. And yet, communities of color have been affected by crack use and for, for a very long time, since the 80s, and there's, there hasn't really been a national response to it. Mm -hmm. It's sort of, a, it's an abandoned community in some ways, and I think that the harmonization community has begun to look at the things that you can do if you're a crack user. You know, and it goes all the way from, um, and it's not just about providing someone with a, a stem or a pipe to, to smoke their crack, but it, it's, all, it's about nutrition, it's about food, it's about sleep, it's about housing, it's about outreach, it's about education, it's about engagement, you know. Uh, there's a whole range, it's about money management. There's a whole range of things that you can do with crack users that we don't really talk about or discuss. And I think I agree with you, that was one of the great highlights of the conference too. Mm -hmm. I also was very um, impressed with the uh, stigma panel and, you know, people who drink too much, they're also very stigmatized by society and it's very much um, America wants to tell people how to live their lives, what they can put into their bodies. Um, mm -hmm. It's extraordinary in the sense that, you know, I mean, we have to recognize that... Um, um, Drug use, I mean, harm reduction as a philosophy and as a way of working with people who use drugs, you know, it's got the word harm in it. We, we recognize openly from, from the get-go that there are harms associated with drugs. Um, and there's a couple of different ways in that which those harms manifest. There's the way the impact that drug laws have on people. 
So the mass incarceration rates we have in this country, which is higher than any other country in the world as a result of war on drugs. And then there's the actual harms that drugs cause to people, whether they, you know, you can, you can fatally overdose, um, you know, on certain drugs, or you can, you know, you go for a long time without eating, perhaps, or that you exacerbate mental health conditions. Um, but we tend to be very black and white in this country about drugs. Um, you know, you either need treatment or you need some kind of, um, you know, interaction with law enforcement or the criminal justice system, and we're not very nuanced with it. We're not very sophisticated around our drug use, and so the way we, what we tend to do is we try to control people's bodies and what they put into them, and, and that's quite an extraordinary thing in some ways, that we, we do restrict as much as possible how people use substances. Uh, it's a very controlling thing. And there seems to be no recognition of the concept of recreational drug use. No. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's either, it's, you know, you, you hear these, you hear people talk about, uh, and I heard this in Vienna recently at a Commission on Narcotic Drugs meeting, that basically any use is immediately gone, it's, it's abuse. Mm-hmm. And again, it, it's such an artificial um, way of looking at things, you know, because a certain drug is legal. Um, I, mean, I mean, you work in the field of alcohol, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and we, we have drug consumption rooms for alcohol, and we don't say that just because someone drinks two beers that they're uh, abusing alcohol. And yet mm-hmm. somehow because you smoke a joint or you do... Um, you know, you snort some heroin, that, that you are a drug abuser. Um, and again, it's about sorting out these subtleties of, you know, what drugs mean to a person. And while we have this really repressive kind of regime, it makes it really hard to, to actually understand how, you, how people interrelate and interact with their, with their own drug use. What, what, what do they need to do to enjoy their drugs, uh, maintain a safe and healthy relationship with their drugs? Some people can't, some people can. And we need to be open and honest about how we address those issues. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, many, 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 many people use drugs recreationally. Mm-hmm. But the majority of people. And even when we're talking about alcohol, I mean... Uh the limits for moderate drinking are very strict. They're like four st- anyone that exceeds four standard drinks is a binge drinker. But there are mm-hmm. people that do engage in recreational alcohol intoxication. They keep it safe. They maybe drink ten drinks, or and they have their transportation arranged ahead of time so that they don't drink and drive and they don't hurt anyone. So there are you know safe ways to actually engage in alcohol intoxication too. But it's condemned to exceed moderate drinking limits in this country. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I think that if you drank to excess every single night, uh, then, you know, perhaps one would need to look at that as to mm-hmm. if you're happy with that or not happy with that, or whether it's healthy or not healthy. Mm-hmm. But if you choose to do that for, at a wedding, you mm-hmm. know, we, we actually do kind of accept that as, as, like, well, you know, we got a bit drunk at a wedding. Somehow there's rituals where it's allowed. And other times, um, it's abusive. 
mm-hmm. and there's, there's no sort of middle ground. Mm-hmm. And there, there are still people out there who will say, well, it's always abusive and we can never condone any alcohol intoxication at all. I mean, there are some very, there's people out there that have that attitude. Mm-hmm. And there are others that say, well, you know, it's all right. If it's safe, if it doesn't harm people, it's not a problem. And I think it really yep. comes down to harm. Harm is the important thing. Is there harm or is yep. there not harm? And I think it's, you know, we, we talked a little, you mentioned a little while ago, it's about control over what you put into your own body in some ways. Mm-hmm. I, I certainly don't, I don't think there's any justification for people who use drugs or alcohol and then endanger other people. Mm-hmm. Um, no one has the right to do that. But when we want to uh, get intoxicated ourselves and we're kind of aware of what we're doing and why we're doing it, then, you know, it's really not anyone's business. Mm-hmm. And there's also, uh, it, we're going to be closing up in a couple minutes here, but there's also, there's nothing wrong with abstinence either. If people find that something is, you know, causing them too many problems or it's too difficult to control. I mean, I've chosen to become absent from cigarettes. It's just too hard to control. Television is my other big addiction that I have to, I can't own television <laughs> or I just waste my whole day. So, yeah, I totally relate. Um, I I have a television, but I don't have it hooked up to cable. I, I will watch films because I will sit there and flick through channels. And it, it's I find it I don't control it very well. Um, I think we absence is a great thing, uh, and, that, and that's one of the myths about harm reduction. In some ways, that we're not we're not supportive of people who either want to stop using drugs or supportive of people in recovery by whichever means they do it. You know, it's really about health and happiness. Mm-hmm. And if someone can be happier by not using, then I think that we have to do everything we can to help them do that. Uh, it's just not that easy at times. I agree completely. Uh, individuals should be making their own choices. Yeah. And I think that we can conclude on that. Thank you very much, Alan, for being our guest this evening. Oh, you're welcome. This is great. Anytime. Okay, thank you. I'm going to do a little All blurb right. now. For our website is hamsnetwork.org. Our book is How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. Um We are a support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking, from being a safer drinker to reducing the quantities to quitting altogether. I'm going to bring our next guest on now. Hello, Stasia. Is that you? Yes, sir. Hello. uh, How are you doing tonight? Doing all right. Doing all right. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can hear you fine. Okay, tell us a little bit. uh, What is Students for Sensible Drug Policy, and what do you guys do? Sure. Uh, well, my name is Stacia Cosner. I work for Students for Sensible Drug Policy in our office in Washington, D.C. Um, we are an international grassroots network of students uh, concerned about the impact of drug abuse on our communities, but who also know that the war on drugs is failing our generation and our society. Um, we have uh, chapters at high schools, colleges, and universities across the U.S., um, and actually in uh, international networks as well, but uh, since I am one of our domestic employees, that is the area that I focus on, um, we have about 165 active chapters across the U.S. who work on uh, advocating for alternatives to uh, failed drug policies um, and uh, alternatives to prohibition. 
Okay, that sounds very good. I saw something on your website, I think, that was about um, making a distinction between students using alcohol and students using marijuana, and that uh, there were some problems with that that uh, you guys were talking about. Absolutely. That's actually uh, one of the issues that I worked on as an SSDP chapter leader when I was at the University of Maryland um, from 2006 until 2000, or 2005 until 2009. Um, I worked there on equalizing the penalties for students who got caught on campus uh, violating uh, marijuana possession uh, policies to, so that they would be no more punitive than those sanctions handed down to students who were caught uh, drinking underage. Um, in, in, you know, my opinion and the opinion of many students, um, illegal is illegal, and they really treated uh, marijuana offenses very much differently than, uh, than they treated alcohol offenses. Um, they really, you know, will throw the book at you for a marijuana offense, even though, you know, it's the, the same breaking of, of rules as, as it would be for an underage person to be drinking alcohol. And because, um, you know, marijuana is relatively such a safer substance um, and the penalties being so disproportionate, um, that's something that a lot of our, a lot of our SSDP uh, chapter members um, do some work on at, at, their, at their schools. Okay. Is your organization in favor of legalization of all drugs? We uh, specifically don't um, articulate a uh, position on on something like that. Uh, we are, you know, we're all united under the banner that we think that the current regime of drug prohibition is not working and that it's time to talk about alternatives. Sure, legalization is certainly one of those alternatives. Um, but, you know, we, uh, we are more about facilitating an open and honest discussion than we are about prescribing the silver bullet solution. Okay. Yeah, because there are many different uh, possible ways to approach this. I know in Switzerland they uh, will prescribe heroin to people who are having difficulties mm -hmm. uh, with methadone maintenance, and, you know, they will be able to get heroin legally uh, in a heroin maintenance program. So that's one alternative that's not outright legalization. I'm sorry? So uh, that, that is one uh, alternative that is not an outright legalization, the heroin maintenance that they do in Switzerland. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, they've taken a, a very unique approach over there, and I think that that's, you know, definitely a step in, in the right direction. Um, you know, it still uh, clearly remains to be seen um, how the details of, you know, different policies do pan out, but, um, you know, we just uh, feel that the current way of approaching things is, is not reducing the amount of drugs that are accessible, especially to young people or to children, um, and it's certainly not addressing the uh, health-related issues that many uh, people who are experiencing addiction face. So we think that it's time for a new approach. Okay. What are some of the harms that you see specifically uh, for students, and how can they be addressed? Sure. Well, there's, uh, you know, I could go on and on all night when, uh, you know, addressing harms that, that students face, especially when, with regards to uh, drugs and alcohol, or rather I should say alcohol and other drugs, because by any definition at all, alcohol is certainly a drug, mm -hmm. um, you know, so... Um, you know, I think that there's a lot of problems that students face ranging from, you know, I, I see two very kind of discrete categories, uh, one being health issues, and those are pretty apparent. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, dangerous to use drugs. That's uh, certainly not being disputed here. Um, and we think that because drugs are so dangerous and the potential is so high, 
that, you know, we need to uh, take, a, take a more harm reduction evidence-based approach um, rather than just saying just say no and just don't do drugs and not addressing the problems or, you know, trying to reduce the risks involved with uh, actually using drugs. Of course, there's, you know, everything on college campuses ranging from, you know, uh, tobacco all the way up to heroin, um, you know, and the war on drugs certainly hasn't diminished um, diminished the availability or, um, you know, the prevalence of these drugs, especially on college campuses. So there's certainly a lot of temptation, a lot of, uh, you know, risk involved. Um, it's, there's a lot of risk involving, you know, alcohol use. Uh, one of our major uh, campaigns, uh, issue areas that we focus on and something that was kind of my cornerstone at the University of Maryland was a uh, Good Samaritan or medical amnesty policy um, designed to protect students who need to call 911 in the case of uh, potential overdose due to alcohol or other drugs. Um, and this, you know, such policies would uh, protect students from uh, being punished or sanctioned, you know, for using or possessing these drugs or alcohol and would just prioritize them uh, calling for help immediately if help is needed rather than weighing the risks and benefits at hand because, oh, they might get in trouble or they might get their friend in trouble, you know, or they're underage and they shouldn't have alcohol, so, you know, maybe they won't call 911. And, you know, it's just a deadly policy to, to have students weighing those options in such life-threatening situations. So that's certainly a, a big risk that's, that's in their face. Oh, absolutely. Um, do you do anything with designated driver programs for uh Absolutely. Absolutely, we do. That's, uh, that's something else that several of our chapters have worked on, actually, at, the, at West Virginia University, one of our best chapters. They, um, the administration actually reached out to them. They reached out to the SSDP chapter and said, "Hey, we know that you guys are about harm reduction and that you're, you know, you're about um, alternative drug policies and things like that. Um, will you help us develop this um, designated driver program and will you help us staff it?" And you know, the chapter has been integral in the, um, you know, development of that program and in the execution of it. And they've, uh, you know, um, just been a great uh, asset. To the community there, and I'm um, just really thankful that uh, you know that that campus in particular has been so welcoming of, of this approach, and that you know it really does mean that the administrators in the community there they really get it. You know, they really get what Students for Sensible Drug Policy is all about. They don't just uh, write us off as you know some uh, students who want to do drugs or like some party group or drug group or anything like that. No, this really and truly is about harm reduction and health for us and we're very serious about it, um, you know, and if that means that we will staff a designated driver program, then we'll staff a designated driver program because, you know, student health and safety is, is certainly number one. Okay. Uh, what are you working on currently? What sort of projects? Uh, well, right now um, we are working on, uh, like I said, the Good Samaritan policies. That's been something that we put a lot of emphasis on, a lot of focus on. Uh, we also just recently launched the N Zero Tolerance campaign. Um, this is something that's very, very recent, just in the last couple of weeks here, um, and we are shifting our, our focus to addressing these very, very strict harm, uh, uh, sorry, very, very strict zero tolerance policies, um, in particular in uh, Northern Virginia, um, because there have been some uh, egregious cases of, uh, uh, you know, uh, mistreatment of students and you know uh, injustices, such as there was a student who was expelled for possessing the then-legal substance um, K2 or Spice, uh, the synthetic marijuana, and the student was expelled. He um, was on the sports 
he's on uh, one of the sports teams, and you know, um, just kind of got everything taken away from him, and got the really the book was thrown at him very hard, and uh, the student um, ended up taking his own life, unfortunately. Um, you know, and this is you know not the first time that this has happened in Fairfax County in Virginia, and it's because these uh, zero tolerance policies are so strict and they're so tight that you know no matter what from. Uh, Actually, there's a there's a 13 or 14 year old student, a uh, female student who just recently um, was punished for having her acne medication in in one of these schools. And so, you know, they're they're very uh, uh, I don't know they see it as a very black and white thing. Like, do you have drugs or do you not have drugs? And if you do have drugs, then we're going to treat you like this. Um, you know, and uh, it's really it's uh, devastated some some family and some student lives. And we think that uh, there has to be a better approach. There has to be you know some sort of a compromise if we're uh, trying to actually address problems at hand. Well, zero tolerance is very unrealistic. This is not the way human beings are from the dawn of history. Mm -hmm. You know, they know that uh, human beings have been consuming alcohol, uh, opiates, marijuana. It's in all the archaeological evidence we find, we find uh, evidence that people are consuming these substances. It's nothing new of, uh, you know, the modern age. It's always been with us. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you hit the nail right on the head. I mean, there's never been a human society that has been drug-free. Never. Never. Nowhere. It's, you know, not going to happen. So, you know, we think that a better way to approach the issue would be to recognize that, you know, that sort of an ideal is not an attainable goal, and rather an attainable goal would be just reducing the overall risk, um, you know, that, that people take when they do decide to ingest such drugs. And also uh, to uh, reduce some of the unrealistic punishments. I forget who it was. Uh, one of our presidents, I think, said that the that the legal consequences of using the drug should never be greater than the consequences of using the drug itself. Jimmy Carter. Yes. Yep, yep, that's a, that's a very appropriate quote, and that's uh, that pretty much sums up, you know, how I personally feel and how uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy looks at the issue. Um, you know, in many cases, in way too many cases, um, the punishments are vastly more damaging than using the drug itself. I think I agree absolutely. Um, the the media seems very intent often on exaggerating the horrors of the drug use. I don't know if they're trying to sell papers or their news shows or what, but they seem very sensationalistic and very unrealistic about the realities of drug use. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I mean, it's not a pretty thing to look at. It's a very ugly thing, you know, um, uh, but it's something that we have to uh, address head on if we want to make any progress whatsoever because this has been going on since 1971 when Richard Nixon declared war on drugs, and, you know, it's just been a drain on our economy and a drain on our, you know, police and health resources when they really should be better spent. Um, you know, uh, uh, producing fact-based, evidence-based um, drug education for young people instead of just telling them to stay away and hoping that they do that. And clearly, uh, two of the uh, most dangerous drugs in uh, the world are the legal, are two of the legal ones, uh, alcohol and tobacco, uh, have mm -hmm. horrific consequences with them. Um, caffeine mm -hmm. is legal, but it doesn't seem to have so many consequences, but alcohol and tobacco seem worse than most of the drugs that we've made illegal. Right. Absolutely. 
absolutely, absolutely right. Um, you know, and I, I'm not sure why that is, but, you know, I mean, clearly our society uh, decided that when alcohol was first prohibited, um, that that wasn't the way to go. You know, they saw the violence that was created by the black market economy and, you know, how people were solving their uh, market disputes with uh, with violence. Um, they decided to change. And, uh, okay, since we mentioned tobacco, uh, do you address tobacco harm reduction at all, things like e-cigarettes or other uh, safer ways to use tobacco? Well, SSDP doesn't um, specifically have any um, campaigns or stances on the subject of tobacco, but I can tell you that uh, many of our chapters have worked um, to um, have worked, uh, have voiced opposition to proposed uh, smoking bans on campus. Um, they see it as an issue of, of freedom and of, um, you know, of, of harm reduction, honestly, um, and, you know, of addressing the problem realistically rather than pretending that it will go away if you uh, tell people that this is a no-smoking zone. Um, honestly, it's just a way to ramp up the the sanctions that are handed down to students by saying, you know, well, uh, we're going to suspend you or we're going to, you know, hit you with this big fine or this big charge if you're uh, smoking tobacco in a tobacco-free zone or whatever. It's exactly the same thing as uh, uh, drug-free school zones. Um, they just really ramp up the, pe the penalty in those certain areas, and the, the dangerous behavior is pushed into other areas. And, you know, I mean, if it were me, if it were my home, um, you know, and I had uh, children who wanted to use drugs or use tobacco, I would much rather they do it under, you know, under supervision uh, rather than, you know, trying to sneak into some more risky situations where there's even less regulation and even less uh, less eyes on the situation. So. Well, um, but no, SSDP doesn't work on tobacco, generally speaking. Well, it might be something to consider. Um, you know, the e-cigarettes are considered between 100 and 1,000 times safer than uh, the regular cigarettes, so it is a... Mm -hmm. For people who are already smoking, you know, and if they're not successful at stopping, it's one way, you know, to get the nicotine without getting the cancer. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, for myself, when I was talking about cigarettes earlier with Alan, I quit cigarettes uh, two and a half years ago. I have one or two cigars a month, and I don't inhale, so they're, they're, pre they're pretty harmless. But uh, Bloomberg, Mayor Bloomberg in New York City, has now banned smoking in parks. So well, the only place I can go to smoke go to smoke now is uh, my church and go smoke in the church garden. I think it's just sure. a little unrealistic um, because you know I want to say to Bloomberg, you know, you're still letting the automobiles run. Well, if I lock you in a room with an automobile, will you die sooner than if I'm locked in a room with a smoker? Of course, you know. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, the amount of uh, Americans, American adults anyway, who are using tobacco at, at this time has uh, been dramatically reduced over the past couple of decades. And that's not because we've uh, increased the penalties for smoking tobacco. It's because, you know, um, the industry has had to adhere to stricter regulations. They've mm -hmm. had to more clearly label the dangers, and I think that people are smart enough to know what to do with that information if and when it's presented to them. Yes, I think that uh, people are much better informed about tobacco than they were before, and that's what help, has helped to reduce the number of people that are smoking 
or especially smoking mm-hmm. cigarettes all day long like I used to do. It's really bad. I mean, there mm-hmm. is there is such a thing as recreational tobacco use too. There are people that smoke occasionally, and it's not uh, it's not nearly mm-hmm. so harmful as uh, you know being an addicted smoker and smoking all day long. Absolutely, and that's you know that's a very important point that you know there is you know there's more than just a black and white you know are you addicted or are you an abstainer. Uh, you know, type of perspective. There's uh, many shades of gray in between that. There are many people who can responsibly use alcohol, who can responsibly use tobacco, who can responsibly use marijuana, who can responsibly use any of the other drugs, Um, you know, and it's just about empowering people to make those decisions on their own rather than the government coming down with a heavy hand. So do you have uh, information for students about safer drug use or safer alcohol use that you uh, give them? We do. Actually, we don't produce that information ourselves. We rely on um, other organizations and resources for that. But uh, my favorite um, is Dance Safe, Dance, Mm -hmm. D-A-N-C-E-S-A-F-E. And uh, they produce really helpful informational cards um, on each and every each and every drug um, that you could that you could think of, all the way from tobacco, all the way up to uh, nitrous oxide and uh, 2C 2CB and all of these other um, you know crazy uh, you know not so well known um, substances. And they have you know uh, uh, what to look out for, warning signs, um, you know advice on what you should and shouldn't expect, on you know uh, what to what to do in uh, situations where using that drug might go awry, um, you know, and, and uh, they're a really excellent resource. And also Safety First um, is a project of the Drug Policy Alliance, and that provides a lot of, um, you know, unbiased, um, rational drug information as well. So those are usually the two resources that I'll refer to students to. Okay. Do you uh, encounter any opposition to the things that you're trying to do? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you know, there's a ton of opposition just in wanting to uh, maintain the status quo and in not wanting to adopt a new approach. Um, you know, and like we discussed earlier, I mean, drug use is not a pretty thing. It's not a fun thing. It's not, um, you know, something, uh, I don't know, that's very uh, easily understood by the masses. It's very complex and everyone has their own ideas of and experiences with with drugs and, you know, with drug abuse and misuse and regular use. And, um, you know, there's just uh, such a variety of, uh, of experiences out there that, um, you know, we really do encounter a lot of, a lot of, uh, lot of opposition. There are people who think that, the, you know, we're just in this because we want to, you know, get high or something like that when it's really not about that because students and young people can already get high if they want to do that. But what we're suggesting is that there must be a safer way for mm-hmm. for people to engage in this risky behavior. Are Not everyone any, agrees with that. Are there any examples of uh, when you've encountered opposition you'd like to talk about? Or? Oh, sure. I mean, when I was at the University of Maryland, uh, as I discussed that I uh, brought up the Good Samaritan policy, um, you know, I was originally aiming to institute, have the university institute a policy that would cover students for um, uh, all drugs, you know, no matter what the situation was, that they should always call 911 if they are, you know, um, in need of medical attention. Um, but the school really pushed back, and they uh, thought that students would abuse the policy. They thought that they would, you know, take advantage 
advantage of it, um, you know, in order to excuse their risky behavior. Um, they thought that this was just a way of the university saying that it's okay to drink or it's okay to do drugs, and that's a big misconception. That's a big, um, you know, a, a thing that's, that's uh, opposing us is uh, the assumption that by having more uh, sensible or lenient approaches to drug policies that it's, it's condoning the use. And that's certainly not the case. In our mission statement, it very explicitly states that we neither condemn nor condone drug use. Mm -hmm. We are not in this to talk about whether drugs are good or bad for you. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a medical professional. I'm a policy advocate. And, you know, we're here to talk about whether the policy is working or not, not whether, you know, a health professional, someone who's more um, qualified to make those statements can and should do that. Um, you know, but we're here talking about the policy, and that's big opposition. Do you get reactions from parents, positive or negative reactions from parents? Oh, very, very, very varied, <laughs> um, incredibly varied reactions from parents, um, you know, uh, ranging from outright anger and, you know, oh, my goodness, I can't believe that you're advocating for drug use and you want everybody to use drugs and, you know, very terrible thing all the way up, you know, and so uh, parents are sometimes even more supportive than the students are of, uh, of these policies, um, you know, but uh, we definitely have every, every single variation of, uh, of responses from parents ranging from very supportive to very not supportive. We, I know of uh, several cases where students have gotten in major, major arguments with their parents over their involvement in this issue, um, you know, to the point where sometimes they'll even uh, kick them out of the house or, you know, uh, impose some other really uh, ridiculous uh, parental sanctions uh, on on the young people for even wanting to be involved in this issue. And it's really sad for me to see, um, you know, that, that they that they don't understand that, that we're concerned about drug use as well. Um, you know, but we just have a different way of approaching the issue and a different idea of what uh, success would look like. We just don't think that success has been demonstrated by the current regime of drug prohibition. Um, you know, and many parents get that, but a lot of them still do not. How about other organizations like Partnership for Drug-Free America? Do, you, uh, do they tell you that you're doing something wrong? Do you hear from them? Yeah, they're not a big fan of ours. <laughs> they're not a big fan of ours, <laughs> that's for sure. Um, you know, our, uh, our executive director, Aaron Houston, was actually on uh, on a uh, television program a couple of mon months ago opposite um, Calvina Fay uh, from one of those organizations. And, you know, we just could not be more... Uh, disparate in our beliefs. Um, we're just very much not on the same page. Um, I wish that we would be a little bit closer to on the same page because, like I said, we are, you know, honestly both concerned with the same end result. We want people to be safe and, and happy, you know, and they want people to be safe and happy, and I, I honestly believe that, but I don't I don't know if anyone from the opposition, um, you know, have used, views uh, the work that we do um, in, that, in that light. Well, it's something I was talking with Alan Clear about. Uh, you know, people should have the right to make their own choices of what they want to put in their own bodies. And, but we're in a society that wants to tell people, you know, you can't put this in your own body. You're not in control of your own body. And on other issues, you know, you can't have an abortion. Uh, there's a lot of people in the United States that want to say that. But uh, there's a lot of people that want to control other people in this society. 
and it leads to stigma of drug users and many other things. Absolutely. That's absolutely right. You know, um, I think that that's absolutely right. So, um, ultimately, I think that it's important to, you know, respect people's rights to make their own choices. If they don't want to use drugs, if they do want to use drugs, it's, you know, it should be on the individual, I think. But that's my Absolutely. opinion. Absolutely. I think that there's, I think that there's nothing more precious, um, you know, than the contents of one's own mind. And when the government um, is trying to tell you or, or prescribe what the contents of your mind should look like, I think that we've gotten into a dangerous area, um, you know, and it um, certainly demands reform. Yes, and uh, I don't know, the 10th Amendment of the Constitution, is, it says that any power that's not granted to the federal government by the Constitution is reserved for the states or for the people. You know, we don't have federal driver's licenses. We have state driver's license because that's not in the Constitution. We shouldn't have federal exactly. drug laws. They should be state drug laws or local drug laws if we have any at all. Absolutely. Absolutely agreed. I think that it is an, it's a huge states' rights issue. And, you know, if there are some states or uh, localities that want to uh, prohibit drugs and that's what works best for their community, then then great. You know, I think that, uh, you know, it's okay that there are dry counties and that, you know, there are different um, alcohol regulations and tobacco regulations in different states. And I think that states, uh, state governments are more than capable of handling this issue. Um, I just think that it's so scary to some people that they don't feel confident enough that they can properly handle it. Hmm. Sometimes I think the federal government is scarier than the, you know, the drugs are, because they are one and the same. <laughs> Too much concentration of power is a well. That's what the Constitution was all about to stop absolutely having, stop us from having too much concentration of power. Mhm. Mm um, are there any other issues you'd like to talk about while you're here? Um, I think that um, that I'm good. Um, are there any questions that that you have for me about SOCP or about um, you know any of our positions or anything else that you want to explore? Uh, well, t let's tell us what your website is, how people can get in contact with you. Give us some of that information. Sure, absolutely. Um, to find out more about Students for Sensible Drug Policy, you can visit us online at www.schoolsnotprisons.com. Uh, and you can also visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash schoolsnotprisons, all one word. Um, we very strongly believe in uh, education over incarceration, and so that is our tagline. And I think that Schools Not Prisons really sums up what we're all about. And that uh, really sums up our, our priorities. And if you are a uh, student or a supporter of students um, who is interested in seeing uh, drug policies take an alternative turn um, in favor of sensibility and harm reduction, then uh, you have found the right organization. You can certainly uh, can and will be welcomed into open arms with uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy. So uh, check out SSDC. Okay, thank you very much for being our guest this evening, Stacia. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Ken. Thanks for the opportunity. All righty. All right, everyone, we'd invite you to go to online to Facebook uh, and visit Students for Sensible Drug Policy or visit their website. 
And our website is handsnetwork.org. Our book is How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. And uh, we are a support group for people who want to change their drinking habits for the better, safer drinking, reduced drinking, or quitting. Uh, I think Stanton Peel is here. I'm going to bring him on the air. Hello, Stanton. How are you? Hi, Ken. As always, a fascinating show. My topic for today's sermon is um, the question, can somebody in a 12-step group really be for and involved in harm reduction? What do you think, Ken? Um, well, our first guest, I know Alan Clear, is uh, a member of a 12-step group because he said so in his biography and D.D. D.D. South's book, but he's also the executive director of Harm Reduction Coalition. So he he's does, the best example in the history of the world. He's a remarkable guy. He I mean, is. he is not only helpful to a million human beings, he's a pleasant person. He doesn't impose his views. During your talk, and he, you talked about the um, harm reduction conference, he mentioned people who had shifted from abstinence to using drugs. Mm-hmm. He's obviously one of those rare human beings, and I really mean rare, who was able to separate himself from what he's chosen to do for himself and what he recommends as a kind of a treatment or a policy. And in part, I can't help but think that has something to do with his European roots, because I find that very rare in the United States. Um one thing you and I had been talking about was recently, uh, in this coming Sunday's New York Times Magazine, mm-hmm. Benoit Denizet Lewis has an article about a wet housing for alcoholics, where alcoholics are allowed to drink in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. And um, let's, let's, let, let's create the list of characters, the, um, you know, the cast of characters. Denizet Lewis is a famous recovering addict. I believe his main addiction was sex addiction. He wrote America Anonymous, mm-hmm. and he's uh, the head, the chief editor of the Good Men magazine project. It's an online publication. And he's died in the wall, 12 steps. Mm-hmm. Um, the particular wet housing that he uh, that visited and wrote, and wrote about coming up in this Sunday's magazine, although you can get access to it now from the New York Times, is one that you're familiar with. Uh, from Saint the inside, St. Uh, Anthony's. Yes, I lived at St. Anthony's for a couple of years. I saw my roommate's picture is in the magazine. I, I recognized him. And I thought he had the... Un, it's you really. Why did he choose to write about that? I mean, maybe he wants to keep active in the New York Times. He used to be a full-time, I think, mag, writer for them. Um but that housing really seemed to rub him the wrong way to read the article. He starts by just talking about the guys going out and getting alcohol. He seemed to be very uncomfortable with those men. And um, he did dutifully cite the research and quoted the director, the clinical director there, as saying, well, not only does it save money, he referred to the Alamarlat study that was published in the Journal of American Medical Association, from wet housing in Seattle, which found out that they cut costs in half for these alcoholics. The way that works is if you've got an active alcoholic in the street, he's constantly incurring medical and other public assistance expenses, you know, being put in the hospital and so forth. 
Um, so those expenses were measured by Marlette et al. to be halved by being put in wet housing where they could just go and drink. Secondly, it's a little bit of human dignity for a person to have a place to go, and whatever that person is like, you know, he's a human being who gets a place to stay. Mm-hmm. But the third most amazing thing was um, they cut back their drinking from 18 drinks to 12 drinks on average daily. Now, that's, it's not a therapy program, the one in Washington or the one in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. The goal is to make people comfortable. And under those, they're still alcoholics for the most part. I mean, 12 drinks a day, what's that count as? But they cut back. And it's sort of like, well, they don't have to go get a bottle and drain it right away because somebody might steal it. They have some degree of personal integrity. And the director, the clinical director at St. Anthony, Yes. Or Andrew? Uh, Anthony. Anthony, he pointed out that they do cut back. And yet, and yet, you could just tell that Dennis at Lewis, who I know slightly, was totally uncomfortable with that. And so he often ends with an inspirational, when he writes a New York Times Magazine article, he usually ends with some inspirational kind of bromide. And so the greatest success, he points out, this isn't a harm reduction article, is one guy who quit drinking altogether for 18 months as a result of being there. And it was as though the reason he quit was because he looked around at these disgusting people, which honestly seemed to be the reaction of Dennis at Lewis to the situation. So he really identified with this guy, and he made him the highlight in a harm reduction article. The highlight was somebody was leaving the place because he had become totally abstinent, because basically he couldn't stand the people there or the company there. He didn't want to be like them. And so it was highly, I found, rejective. And ironically, it just pointed out to me one of the great ironies of the 12-step model. They supposedly claim it's a medical disease that's not something within people's domain of responsibility. And yet at the same time, they're capable of being the most, they tend to be the most pejorative the most disapproving. And they not only disapprove, actually, of people who are alcoholics, but even people who might control their alcoholism or improve their alcoholism. It's almost as though they hate those people more than Mm -hmm. just an actual street alcoholic. So we have Alan Clear, and we have um, Benoit Dennis at Lewis. So there are different human beings who are part of 12-step groups and approach harm reduction institutions, so I guess that proves that anything is possible. However, however, I very much see Dennis Lewis as typical for America, and I personally see these philosophies, the 12-step disease model and harm reduction, as being basically at war with one another. And we see that war fought daily, I think, in the streets and policies of America, and of course, the twelve steps tend to be far, far more dominant. What do you think, Ken? Well, I'm going to comment on the time when I was a resident at St. Anthony, and one of the things that was really striking to me was most of the guys there, they, the alcoholics housed there, they looked after each other so well, and when somebody was passed out in a snowdrift and might he freezing might freeze to death, you know. You know, his friends would come and get him and pull him out and bring him in to where it was warm. 
and you know we always looked out for each other and you know if while my friend got food sent in from home he would say oh come on and just share share some with me and you know you you know you think these are rough guys you know and you have this terrible picture of the street alcoholics but you know the majority of them were really caring individuals that took care of each other so um you didn't get any feeling did you get a feeling from that from the article not at all no it was you didn't get that sense of humanity and that feeling which i'd actually seen even among bottle i used to believe it or not when i was in high school in philadelphia hitchhike to new york and i used to hang around the bowery I, i've always had a pretty strange life and i noticed that among the street guys who drank there in the in the cheap bars you get a, a beer for 25 cents that there was some human commonality there, bless their hearts, and human beings need that. I know we're close to when you have to turn uh, tune out here, Ken, just despite our having gotten to my fascinating high school life, but uh, we'll have to carry on some other time, I guess. All right, and next week, Stan will be back, and our guest will be Sharon Stancliff, Medical Director of the Harm Reduction Coalition, and Katie Witkiewicz, who worked with Ellen Marlette on relapse prevention. Thank you, everyone. Good night. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.